Hello, welcome to Autistic Counter Stories. In this podcast, we celebrate and affirm the diverse perspectives of autistic people, informed by research developments and lived experiences. We don't aim to represent every experience in this series. We also don't want to tell stories that try to explain away differences or lump together people's diverse experiences. Rather, we want to present you with a selection of counter stories to dispel myths and counter oppressive narratives and honor the diversity of autistic lives. One more thing. In this podcast, you'll hear very little from our show's producers. We'd like you to experience these stories in people's own words, writing and music so that their experience stands alone and reflects the wonderful variety of neurodivergence. Today, we're exploring autism and communication. Some autistic people do not use any or use very few words to communicate. Lots of autistic people experience moments where they prefer not to speak to one degree or another. The words you're hearing are read by a dear friend of the writer who themselves feels they can't use their own voice in this way. They much prefer writing. The time for thought and redrafts allows space for them to express themselves in ways they never could verbally. In times of overwhelm and stress, their words feel as if they're trapped beneath their tongue and they can't find a place for them to go so they come out all in a rush or not at all. At other times it's more of a choice. They stay silent as they simply feel they have nothing they want or need to say. In this episode, you'll hear from autistic people who express themselves in different ways. We join Gabriel at his piano class. We listen to Silke as she reads us some poems by the autistic poet Birger Zlin. And we hear from Christian, a friend of the Zlin family, who uses facilitated communication to talk to her own autistic son, Christoph. Okay. No, I think it's... Is this, this one? one? Yeah, 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 this one. I presume that way you put it was a good spot between the two pianos. Yeah. yeah. Hello, mate. Hello. Hello, Adam. Hello, Gabriel. Hello, Robert. Hello. Here's <laughs> your music, Gabe. It's not you need it. Oh. No, but that helps me a bit sometimes. Yeah. Ready? That's number one. Hi, I'm Adam. I work at the University of Northampton. I've known Gabriel for about 10 years, I think, as a sort of teacher, mentor and friend. Hi, I'm Nikki. I'm Gabriel's mum. So I have known Gabriel for 23 years. And he learned to read. He was fascinated mm-hmm. by books and words, but he didn't read with comprehension. He it was just the, the words, mm. as far as he was concerned, were just interesting patterns. So, at quite a young mm-hmm. age, he'd read really complicated things like The Guardian, but the be <laughs> didn't really. Joy teacher, teacher, Adam's teacher. Mum and Joy teacher. Mum's a teacher. Yeah. Together, but a very accurate reader and <gasps> quite an accurate speller as well. He has got what's called hyperlexia in his profile, which is part of his interest in words and patterns. And 
I was working out then that the important thing to do was to follow what Gable's interests were, follow his cues. Gable became fascinated with the decoding of the dots on the page into letters, but he wanted us, the game was, he wanted us to do it. So most of the lesson was spent me writing like C sharp A D. But I mean the advantage is like today. All the shapes. You did learn all the shapes, didn't you? You she were just doing all the shapes. Squares and rectangles and hexagons. He drew all the shapes. You did. He watches very carefully if he needs to know where to place something. Yeah, so today you can hear, you could see, sometimes, Gabriel, you're looking at me occasionally to check. Yeah. It's all, but there's some visual as well. Yeah. Isn't there, young man? Because clearly, Gabriel, you've got zillions of things in your head. But they haven't necessarily got labels. Mm. And yeah. if you haven't got a label, you can't access them. Yeah. And that's the tricky part. Yeah. So it's like this memory is very, um, it's very modular, you know, so each memory is quite specific. Mm. And you can't get at it through, like, like if we couldn't remember something, we'd say, I know it begins with C, or it's, do you remember we had, mm. but there's none of that horizontal mm. networking. It's just either you hit the, yeah. hit the name exactly, or it doesn't exist. And that's the challenge. Gabriel plays with enormous passion and energy and he's and a great sort of joy. He loves it, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. So it's not the way I would play music myself, yeah. but I don't think that's the mm. important thing. I think, like with the Grieg we played, it's quite, it's quite a big, bombastic kind of piece in places. And um, you, you do get that sense of... Of real communication and being at one with someone on a much higher level, you know. Than, I mean, we're sort of mates, aren't we? But you can sort of have a bit of a chat. But musically, it's like a different plane, isn't it? A completely mm. different world. Mm. And we kind of, I think, Gabriel, you, I mean, we both know that, and that's all that matters, you know. So mm. we can't, we can't, like, there's no metacognition. So like musicians after performance might say, oh, I, you know, they talk about it. And you go, we haven't got that. But um, in a sense, it doesn't matter because we sort of both know we had the experience. And I guess Gabriel enjoys it, otherwise he wouldn't keep coming back. <laughs> So you asked me to say a few words about myself and it's funny how this question immediately makes my brain wonder what does that mean a few how many words are that uh, it's one of the reasons why I've asked you to communicate me the interview structure beforehand because the 
Simplest questions can become very stressful for an autistic brain to deal with, or for mine at least. It's not that I don't understand that the question is not meant literally, but out of the mountain of information that I have stored, it's difficult for me to decide what will be relevant to you. But I'll give it a go, these few words about myself. My name is Silke, and I prefer the pronouns she and her. I was born in 1988 in Belgium, so I'm 35. I got diagnosed with autism in 2018, so at the age of 30. I work part-time in a bookstore, and I'm studying theater and film studies. I'm thinking right now of this image that I once saw, and I I think it's a very accurate image of autism as this mixing panel, like mixing board. While what often, what I feel often happens is that people see the spectrum as a sort of continuum and you're, you're like a little bit autistic or you're very autistic, which is really not how it works. And that's why I like the image of the mixing panel because if you imagine this mix, mixing panel with all these areas of life that are or can be impacted by being on the spectrum, like use of speech and communication in general, this, I don't know how to call it, this like mixing element can be like all the way down or all the way up, but there's going to be something with this area in life that makes you struggle in a world that is designed for a neurotypical mind and neurotypical functioning. And it also doesn't mean mean that this is a fixed condition. This is usually not the case. For example, I was myself, I was hyperlexic as a young child, meaning that I learned myself how to read on a very young age. And according to my mother, I would construct extremely complex sentences at an age where people wouldn't even expect me to speak yet. And hyperlexia is quite common as an autistic trait and sometimes even predates going completely nonverbal. But it is less known because of the di- diagnostic criteria used to include the absence or bare minimum of speech. And Before my diagnosis, I didn't realize this, but I actually do have episodes of selective mutism. In other words, moments where I go nonverbal. And my personal experience is that these moments are triggered by extreme stress, which can be both negative and positive stress. It can happen when someone gets really angry with me, but also when I'm infatuated or embarrassed. So basically, when I'm overwhelmed by an emotion. But sometimes it's it just occurs when my brain can't find a response to a new situation, which then causes a lot of stress because it makes me afraid of coming across roots. Root, um, so it's a cycle. So, Birger Zelin, I'm trying to pronounce it the German way because Birger Zelin is a German man. 
who is autistic and who published two books in the 90s, I believe the first one in 1993 and 1995. And what is particular about the publishing of these books by this man is that Birger is nonverbal and he started communicated by the help of facilitated communication. I encountered the work of of Birger Zelin in 2018, the year I would be diagnosed with autism. The therapist I consulted at the time lent me one of Birger's books, which has been a great gift because I discovered afterwards that the work is not even read- readily available in libraries. I remember after taking home that book that I got to borrow from my therapist, which was the second book published by Birger Zelin. I actually, the other day, I went back to the emails that I sent about my reading experience to that therapist because I was so stunned. And I read yesterday that the the word I used in Dutch was to describe my reading experience was hoveringwekkend, which translates to hair-raising, like the feeling of goosebumps, because I was shocked and, and humbled by the poetic mastery, and at the same time, I felt heartbroken by some of the content. Birger's writing manages to counter many of the preconceptions that live on autism, not only in the popular, but also in the medical domain. Those false ideas are, for example, that autistic people lack empathy and imagination. And Birger, to me, radically proves the opposite. But I'd rather leave it to reading some of his work and to the listening of the listener themselves, because I think the work speaks for itself. But those two points, to me, stood out. The work is so rich in imagination, in in metaphors and the use of images. Ravens, lonely and sociable creatures, sit croaking in trees, and their unmelodious call sounds over the childless city. Without universal mistakes, the world will die. Mistakes show the right way to do things, which stop a loveless society in its rush to the exit of death. I want to deconstruct in order to construct. My screaming has an obvious effect. I make people feel immeasurable anxiety and the fear that lives in us all. Without screaming, they don't notice this in themselves at all. And they drown their pervading fear in a well-ordered life. I will scream them awake again, because I am afraid for them all. I do not distinguish between their anxiety and mine. It smells unpleasant and transfers into me, itself to me. Anxiety is the cause of loveless people, the cause of harshness and terror. I can't live in peace and quiet with this anxiety. I must scream. Anxiety gives the boxed-in feelings the upper hand and they stifle me. I am without me. 
I am a slave to the vast force of anxiety. Yes, so um, my son is 44 now. I have two sons and the other one is a bit younger, but the autistic one is 44. He's not living at home any longer, but in, institu in an institution. But we have a very intense contact still. He was, uh, it was very hard time in the beginning. Well, he had speech until the age of three or four. And then he started forgetting about words. That is, he said, he didn't say I, he said the boy wants. And then he couldn't say what he wanted. So this went on and on, and we weren't able to keep him, so to speak. So with five years, about five, he almost stopped talking altogether. And as we knew, he had known and recognized almost all letters. We tried to make him, well, we tried to communicate through letters, for example. We had these plastic letters that you with a magnet, and we try to make him uh, form words with them and use that somehow. But then one day he just started uh, hitting his teeth with his letters instead of using them. We also tried sign language and uh, didn't uh, get any results. He has difficulty imitating, and so... Uh, we just tried to live with him in a good way, but uh, gave up on these, uh, on language until when he was already 12 or 13. I heard, well, I had started working, uh, doing voluntary work for the Parents Association in our city and went to congresses. And so uh, in one congress when he was about 13 or 12, I heard someone talk about Bergazeline, who was then 17 and um, who had started writing, though he doesn't speak. And so I just uh, got the address of his mother and wrote her at that time, letters were still the way to contact people. That was about 1991 or two. And uh, she wrote back five pages. So another year passed. Then um, Anneseline invited me to a congress in Berlin. And I went there with another mother and saw videos. And then suddenly... So it was facilitated communication that he was using. And uh, I saw that the other youngsters who were in these videos were not different in their behavior for my son. And so I started again. And um, when I came back, I just thought a bit and made materials and um, then told him what I had seen and that maybe we underestimated you quite a lot. 
you could try and show us if if you understand much more than we thought. I'm sorry about maybe underestimating you. And his reaction was already interesting. And then I just had flashcards with pictures first and asked him if he could show me this or that, the banana or the apple or something like that. And um, kept back his hand to give him more security. And then he he really made the movement toward the right thing. And uh, that was first uh, with pictures. And then I tried with letters, if he still recognized letters. And so we did this in a progressing way until after half a year, he was able to, to utter more. Uh, well, first in the beginning, he was very motivated. Then it seemed seemed to be not very interesting. Then Berger wrote him, and I read it to him, what he wrote him. And, uh, well, at any rate, um, there is another autistic young man in Germany. So I asked him, do you know anything about him? And uh, you might write to him. And that was the first time he tried to write about himself. And he wrote two sentences, which took him, I don't know, half an hour or an hour, that I'm writing painfully uh, because I want to express myself, but it's very hard. remember while I was selecting the poems, I noticed that I was avoiding the texts, the poems where Birgir talks a lot about suffering, not to erase the suffering, but because I have developed this carefulness or even a fear about connecting the the concept, but also just the, the the word, the use of the word suffering to autism. And what I mean by being careful when talking about autism and suffering is that autistic people never just suffer because they're autistic, or they usually don't suffer just because they're autistic. They suffer because they're forced to live in a world that is not designed to meet their needs Yet I do want to stress that any person with autism, of course, is entitled to their own experience of suffering and their desire to relieve this suffering. So too often the emphasis is put on the suffering and not, for example, on the unique qualities of people with autism. Although, and this is a little bit of another, of, of another topic that deserves attention, but I was going to say, although... There is attention to the unique qualities of autism, but then it is usually presented as an extreme possession of of a, of what is called a seventh talent, or and yeah, that's that's another risk risk of that occurs in this discourse.
could I just quickly say a little bit about my son because I talked to him after we had the interview and I promised uh, to ask him. So he said we are allowed to say Christoph, his name. And when I, I told him about the podcast, his first question was, can't I take part at all in this interview? And uh, then I said, uh, would you be interested? And he said, yes. And I said, well, you're obviously not going to be able to do this because you won't be here in that time and you don't speak English. But uh, I can ask you some of the questions uh, they asked me in the interview, what you would say about them. And then he said, well, I asked him, what does communication mean for you? Because I remembered that. And he said, uh, it's really very important. Communication is really very important. And I most prefer uh, serene. This is his word, heiter, a serene young helper to communicate, probably. Gabriel, Gabriel, can we talk to you about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? What were you in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? What were you? Gabriel. Gabriel, what were you? Gabriel. What were you in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Yes. Yeah. What were you? What role were you? Were you? Gabriel you was. You played. I've got a golden ticket. You did. Can you sing it to us? I never for my life could be envy but catastrophe But suddenly I begin to see a bit of good luck for me There's this one text that's at the very beginning of, of the book Some sort of a foreword, foreword by Birgit himself Which I am happy to share now I am going to write a song about the joy of speaking. A song for mute autistics to sing in institutions and madhouses. Nails in forked branches are the instruments. I am singing the song from deep down in hell. I am calling out to all the silent people in this world. Make this song your song. Thaw out the icy walls, make sure you aren't thrown out. We will be a new generation of mute people, a whole crowd of us singing new songs. Songs such as speaking people have never heard. Of all the poets I don't know of, one who was mute. So we will be the first. And people won't be able to shut their ears to our singing. I am writing for my silent sisters, for my silent brothers. We want people to hear us and give us somewhere we can live among all of you. Live a life in this society. Okay, listen. E minor, not G.
Yeah. Yay, lovely yeah. day. Alcohol dangerous thing. Say again, again. Alcohol dangerous thing, please. Oh no. What, what, what? It said Alcohol dangerous You mentioned the word. You once. did. You did, did say I? the word. Yeah. Did I? Okay. Yeah. But it went in, didn't it? It Very did. It more. did. And he was. He used his charm because he said, "Hark the Herald Angels, please." <laughs> <laughs> and he also knows that normally Robert's been very polite, but if he played that at home, there would be a reaction because it's not the twenty fourth of December, oh, yeah. which is the only time that Christmas comes. <laughs> one of the great pillars traditional of autism is this lack suppose this is in inverted commas this lack of understanding of how other people think and feel yeah, but sure, the reality is that it's only ever been tested in a sort of deficit situation so instead of saying here's a language that Gabriel understands very well which is music Yes, Gabriel. It's like it's like saying so theory of mind is your ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Now let's say we went to a language a country in a language we didn't understand. So we're in Russia, right? And someone was doing you a theory of mind test in Russia. And yet that's that's the way that psychologically a clinical test might work for someone like Gabriel because it's it's just not his it's not his world it's not always interesting. Yeah. Whereas you find something that Gabriel's interested in, like the yeah, music of a particular season. Also, I you know, didn't let it down. Yeah, okay. That uh, it also irritates his father. Put two and two together. <laughs>
also happens to be the dad's favourite shit. Toy Story. Go on there. You're on the roll now, aren't you? I mean, I work with people who are really very, very developmentally delaying. Uh, totally non-verbal and stuff but they can tease me so to tease you have to have not only a sense of what someone else might be thinking but you have to have a sense of what they might be thinking you know it's at least a four three or four stage process of thinking I'm thinking because to tease someone and know it's funny you need to think about that person's perception of yourself it's really complicated really complicated to me the critical thing working with autistic people is it's all about context, so you have to, to to go towards them and find out, you know, how imperfectly we can understand the world of someone who's seeing and hearing and thinking in quite a different way. But if you even go a tenth of the way towards their world, you suddenly see, actually, God, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer a deficit model. It's the deficit of the people trying to understand people with autism, really. And I think the cognitive... The traditional cognitive psychology model and the medical model just don't work mm. terribly well with people who aren't interested in conforming because it's all about conforming, isn't it? Mm. And the joy of Gabriel is he won't conform, he doesn't want to play, he won't play. I mean, it's as simple as that. <laughs> but I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't introduce him to things that I think he might like. Well, like, for example, I'll give you an example. So, in um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Gabriel knew the tune pretty well and one two of the calls. But instead of saying, right, this is a didactic approach, Gabriel, that was wrong, that was wrong, this is what you're supposed to do, I just played it. And over three or four sessions, he'll just he'll get it. And so that's more, that's what I call nudging. It's just there in his environment. And if you want to take it up, you can, Gabriel. But I, so you could say, well, why do I want him to learn those chords? Well, partly because it means he could play the song with other people, which I think is really important. And also because it's, I can do, once he's got those chords, I can do slightly more complicated ones so you can enlarge his musical vocabulary. So my view is that technically and musically, I just try and um, equip people to be the best that they want to be, to find the things that they want to do, rather than saying, this is the way to play the piano, this is the correct technique. Well, like with Gabriel, you could say, well, I'm not going to teach you the second phrase of somewhere over the rainbow until you've got the first one right. That would be the traditional way to do it. Mm. But I know the way Gabriel works is holistically, so he takes mm. the whole piece in and gradually fills in the detail. Mm. So I think it's having that experience and those insights that I think yeah. we share that mm. make it fun and effortless. Thank you for listening to Autistic Counter Stories.
This three-part podcast series is commissioned by the Autism Ethics Network at the University of Antwerp, with funds from Research Foundation Flanders. Elena Dikomitis is creative lead and executive producer of the series. Dieter de Klerk is co-producer, academic liaison, and lead editor. Louis Dunlop Marriott is assistant producer. The podcast music was composed by Bram Vahaga from Studio de Nook. The voiceover was written by my dear friend M and read by me, Ada Rose. Researchers from the Autism Ethics Network have offered invaluable guidance on the concept of autistic counter-stories. Finally, a special word of thanks goes to the people who let us into their lives and allowed us to share their stories with you. Thanks to Gabriel, his piano teacher Adam, his parents Nikki and Robert, Christian and her son Christoph, Silke and Birger Zelin for his beautiful poetry. We want autistic counter-stories to reach as many people as possible. If you want to support us, please share this podcast with others, post about it on social media, or leave a review. If you have any questions or feedback, please send us an email. Contact details and a full list of people we wish to thank are included in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.